Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. In 2012, an article in The Atlantic was being widely shared among my friends. It was called, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And it was by a Princeton professor named Anne-Marie Slaughter. And I remember reading it several times and hearing from other full-time moms that were friends of mine how validated they felt in their choice to stay home with kids. Several months later, my husband and I went to dinner with some of his grad school friends. And the women there, who were mothers who worked outside the home, were also talking about the article, but with a lot of consternation and a feeling of a bit having been betrayed. And the article was a big deal in my different friend circles, and it turned out it was a big deal all over the country. It turned out to be one of the most widely read pieces ever published by The Atlantic. And the author, Anne-Marie Slaughter, continued engaging in the national conversation on the topic of work-life balance after the publication of the article, and she eventually published a book called Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, in 2015. And this is the book that we read for today's episode, and I'm so excited to discuss it with my reading partner, Nyland McBain. Welcome, Nyland. Hi, Amy. Happy to be here. Oh, thanks so much for being here. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this with you. And I'll just start, um, before we start talking about the book itself, I'll just talk just briefly about the author so we have an idea of and what prompted her to, to write the book. So Anne-Marie Slaughter was born in Virginia in 1958 to a Belgian mother and an American father. She graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University in 1980 and then received her master's of philosophy in international National Affairs from Oxford University in 1982. She then studied at Harvard Law School and graduated cum laude with a JD in 1985. And she continued at Harvard after graduation as a researcher. And then in 1992, she received her PhD in international relations from Oxford. Anne-Marie Slaughter served on the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School from 1989 to 1994, and then on the faculty of Harvard Law School from 94 to 2002. She then moved to Princeton University to serve as the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, and she was the first woman to hold that position. And she held that post from 2002 to 2009 when she accepted an appointment at the U.S. State Department working under Senator Hillary Clinton. And in 2011, she returned to Princeton as a professor. And the factors, the, the personal and professional factors that informed that decision for her to leave the State Department and go back to Princeton are what led her to publish that article that I mentioned at the very beginning, that article in the Atlantic magazine in 2012 that was entitled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And Nyland, do you want to just kind of expand on that part of the story really quick? Because it's kind of a good segue before we get into the actual chapters. Yeah, yeah sure. So as you mentioned, she left the State Department uh, despite having the opportunity to stay. She had been working under Senator or Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and she was widely criticized for this dis this decision. She says in the book, this crisis had forced me to confront what was most important to me, 
rather than what I was conditioned to want or perhaps what I had conditioned myself to want. So she noticed the tension right away in the, in the responses of her friends and colleagues. You know, when she made this decision to go home to her two teenage sons who had, they, I think they'd been having some problems, you know, just, just uh, discipline issues and, um, and, and there was an immediate backlash against her for making this decision. And so she, she really had to evaluate for herself, you know, why she was making that decision. Was it based on, you know, societal pressures? Was it in contrast to societal pressures? Um, was it really what she wanted or was she feeling, you know, why was she feeling guilty about this decision? Why was she feeling pressure from, from all sides. And so she, as you've mentioned, she does explore this in the, in the Atlantic article, why women still can't have it all. And as you mentioned in your introduction, it's one of the most read articles in the history of the magazine. And her thesis is that women still don't have the freedom to make the choices that work best for them because of systemic and cultural barriers around women in the workplace in a day-to-day -day lived reality. And that's what I, I love so much about her approach in this book. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay, well, then let's dig in. That's um, the perfect launching point. So one way of viewing the book is as a response to another really influential book that was coming out right around the same time. It was Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And that was published in, in 2013 and encouraged women to pursue leadership in their field of work, um, even if they have children at home, and to kind of go full throttle when you're in the prime of your life. And so Slaughter addresses this. She, she talks about this conversation that, you know, the nation was having at the time, and there's the Sandberg approach, and then there's the Slaughter approach. And she says this, Cheryl Sandberg and I agree on many things. We both encourage women to speak up and take their place at the table. We both want to see many structural changes in the workplace. To some extent, the difference between us is largely a matter of which side of the equation to emphasize. A difference that, on my side at least, is a function of relative age. I would have written a very similar book to Lean In at 43, Sandberg's age when she published her book. My kids were very young, and I had never met a work-life challenge that I could not surmount by working harder or hiring people to help out. By 53, when I wrote my article, I found myself in a different place, one that gave me insight into the circumstances and choices facing the many women who have found that for whatever reason, leaning in simply isn't an option. On another level, however, the differences between Sandberg and me are more fundamental. We have similar backgrounds in many ways, but our careers have led us on very different paths. Sandberg focuses on how young women can climb into the C-suite in a traditional male world of corporate hierarchies. I see that system itself as antiquated and broken. When law firms and corporations hemorrhage talented women who reject lockstep career paths and question promotion systems that elevate quantity of hours worked over the quality of the work itself, the problem is not with the women. Lean In tells you how to survive and win in what is still fundamentally a man's world while making what changes you can when you reach the top. Okay, so as I said, this is in some ways, it's kind of a, a primary thesis in the book, and that's reflected in her original Atlantic article where she says she says that she still strongly believes that women can have it all and that men can too. They can have a, a rich work life and a rich family life. And she says she even believes that we can have it 
all at the same time, but not right now, not today, not with the way America's economy and society are currently structured. And so she says, yeah, the, the problem is not the women. It's that the women aren't sufficiently supported in order to make an egalitarian society run efficiently and well. I would add that that Anne-Marie Slaughter is responding not just to Sandberg with this book, but also to so many of the feminist pioneers who have come before from everyone from Simone de Beauvoir, Rianne Eisler, who mm-hmm. you've talked about, and even earlier, Georges Sand, who all wrestled with this idea that in order to achieve equality with men, women had to act like men or at least play the male game of achievement. So I really think Slaughter is trying to move us firmly into a more evolved attitude that equality between men and women doesn't have to mean sameness. And we might, we're much more comfortable with this idea of, of men and women being the same, right? And women mm-hmm. kind of climbing the structure that's already in place for us. But, you know, to do what Slaughter's suggesting, we have to kind of backtrack a little bit and break things down before we can build them up again. And that's that's a scarier place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. Um, okay, that's all I have for chapter one, Nyland. Do you want to take it away with um, the chapters that you selected? I will, yes. So I'm actually taking the next several chapters because in these chapters, Slaughter outlines some half-truths. And her her basic thesis with these half-truths is that the you know there there are definitely there's some truth in them but um but 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 they're only half truths there's a lot that's missing so i'll just read some of the half truths that she proposes here in chapter 2 and i i think maybe it'll become clearer what i mean so a half truth she says is not wholly false it's just that half truth it often obscures a bigger deeper truth something that we do not want or do not choose to face so there's three main half-truths that she claims women have absorbed and, and, and live by in, in a sort of fallacy. The first is, you can have it all if you are just committed enough to your career. Secondly, you can have it all if you marry the right person. And third, you can have it all if you sequence it right. And she spends a lot of time unpacking these half-truths, but her basic her basic summary is that that life is an adventure and things don't go the way you want them to go, right? This And the system isn't set up to absorb the vagaries of women's lived experience. None of these things actually happen. Nobody is actually committed enough to their career to just, you know, sort of force it through to, to, to be the exact thing that someone wants it to be. Nobody marries the right person and no one ever sequences <laughs> it right because life happens, right? Mm-hmm. And so – she says that a resilient system, the one kind of system that she's advocating for, is one that can handle the unexpected and bounce back, that anticipates the possibility of many different paths to the same destination. So um, she amends the half-truths at the end of the chapter, and she turns them into whole truths. And she says, yes, you can have it all if you're committed enough to your career, dot, 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 and you are lucky enough never to hit a point where you're where your carefully constructed balance between work and family topples over. Secondly, she says you can have it all if you marry the right person, dot, 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 who is willing to defer his or her career to yours. You stay married. Your own preferences regarding how much time you are willing to spend at work remain unchanged after you have children or find yourself caring for aging parents. The third half-truth is you can have it all as long as you sequence it right. 
yes, dot, 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 as long as you succeed in having children when you plan to, you have an employer who both permits you to work part-time or in a flexible work schedule and still sees you as leadership material, or you take time out and then find a good job on a leadership track once you decide to get back in, regardless of your age. So there are a lot of buts in there. Um, Yes, you can have it all if you have these things. And I'll just go quickly through the half-truths of the workplace. She does the same exercise with workplace half-truths. She says, the first half-truth is that the issue of work-life balance is a woman's problem. If we define it that way, then it is up to women to find or at least implement the solution. The second is that employers can make room for caregiving by offering flex time and part-time arrangements. While these policies certainly represent progress over rigid, all-in or get-out workplaces, they're not nearly enough for many workers with caregiving responsibilities. The third half-truth is our assumption that wanting work-life balance, or even just wanting a life outside of work, signals a lack of commitment to that work. That assumption reflects a mindset that promotes men with full-time wives and no lives. She she concludes this section on half-truths with what I think is really the great the great coupling, the great pairing of the book. And it's it's in the title of chapter four, and the title is Competition and Care. And she labels these as the great motive, the two great motivators of men and women alike. She defines competition as the impulse to pursue our self-interest in a world in which others are pursuing theirs, and care is the impulse to put others first. So one is, you know, put ourselves first, and then the other is put others first. And these have been historically gendered, she notes, with caregiving devalued and discriminated against. And she cites this statistic that motherhood is now the single best indicator that an unmarried middle-class woman will end up bankrupt. So she doesn't, you know, she sees us a society uh, that it really wants to pit one against the other and one in which we are constantly weighing one against the other and valuing one against the other. This gets to, you know, such, such important ideas of Rianne Eisler and the real wealth of nations, this idea that you know, monetary value is the way that we assign uh, worth to activities, right, and to projects. Um, and she says, I'm not proposing to devalue competition. I'm proposing to revalue care, to elevate it to its proper place as an essential human instinct, drive, and activity. This is another thing that I love about Slaughter's approach. She's not trying to take away something from anybody. She's not trying to take away power. She's not trying to take away worth. She's not trying to take away value. She's trying to build up the other side of the equation. And, you know, if we do look at that in traditional gendered terms, that's really important. And she kind of concludes this, this sort of, you know, rebalancing of the scales by saying, in the long quest for gender equality, Women first had to gain power and independence by emulating men. She she's acknowledging here that there was a place for all of that, right? There was a there was a there was a place for saying we have to lean into the to the the male structure. But she goes on, as we attain that power and independence, we must not automatically accept the traditional man's view, which is really the view of only a minority of men about what matters in the world. Mm-hmm. 
So she continues with this idea in chapter five, and I love the title of chapter five because it's the, the title is, Is Managing Money Really Harder Than Managing Kids? Again, she's <laughs> kind of you know challenging us to question um, our valuation of these different activities. Um, and and she, says, she says, it may seem obvious, but let's be clear about the meanings of breadwinning and caregiving. In any society that has a system of exchange beyond barter, adults have to earn income to pay the rent or the mortgage, buy food, clothing, and furniture, pay for transportation, heat, electricity, health insurance, and a phone. That's breadwinning. One or both members of a couple must also do the work that turns that income into goods and services necessary for survival and flourishing. Shopping, cooking, cleaning, washing, driving, repairing, organizing, and outsourcing. And that is just the physical dimension of care. The taking care of another human being in the same way that a caretaker looks after a house or property. Caregiving, the term we typically use when we mean taking care of other people, includes the additional emotional component of love and nurture the transformation of an income stream into the lifeblood of human connection. I just love how she extends the, I mean, it's, it's, she really takes the equation of caregiving on one side and competition on the other side, and she actually turns them into a linear equation. She actually says competition plus caregiving equals life, right? Equals the mm-hmm. human condition. You can't mm-hmm. just live off of competition alone. Nobody does. Even the most hardened, you know, focused Wall Street trader still has to like feed himself, right? <laughs> still has to like yep. call his mom once a week or whatever, right? Still mm-hmm. has Instagram, still likes to connect with other people. And yep. so she's saying, you know, there's a continuum between competition and caring. They're not on either side um, battling each other out. It's a continuum. And um, they're both necessary. You have to take the income that's produced from competition and you have to spend it because that's where life really is. It's in the spending of that, mm-hmm. um, of, of the, the, that produce, right? And of course, I, I, I agree completely. And I, I also appreciate her kind of reformatting that spectrum and pointing out we've, we've always gendered that and it doesn't need to be gendered. So the next chapter that we wanted to highlight, and both of us picked this one as as really essential, is chapter six. And it, this chapter kind of fleshes out one of the main concepts of the book. The book title is, of course, Unfinished Business. And I was thinking about that title and, and just how it refers to the fact that the women's movement, especially, you know, the 1972nd wave of feminism really started those, you know, important shifts in society or continued them rather from prior feminist movements. But, you know, that that paradigm that women should make themselves more like men and that we can crush it in a man's world. And and I think that's what she's referring to when she calls the book Unfinished Business. Like we, there's still a ways to go and there's still work left to be done. And one of the most important pieces in the next phase is a men's movement. And so the, the title of chapter six is The Next Phase of the Women's Movement is a men's movement. And I even just love the title of the chapter. I think it's so great. So she starts out this chapter with an article that was in the New York Times by Matt Volano, and it's called, I Hate Being Called a Good Dad. 
and he's a full-time parent. And I have to admit, I when I read, you know, the passages in the book from his article, my heart melted like as he's describing <laughs> him like at Target and he's a like man waving with a baby. At, yes. yes, it's so cute. Um, so sweet. And he is a good dad. And you know, he describes taking his two little girls to the park and taking them, and he says he has this, you know, kind of like routine where they wave to the security cameras in Target. And he said one time when he was there. A woman just looked at him with these, you know, kind of stars in her eyes and said, oh, you're such a good dad. And he says he he hears that all the time. And he says that this incident and of course, I mean, he recognizes it comes from a good place, but he calls it a heinous double standard where he is praised for behavior that in a mother would be regarded as absolutely routine. And he points out, he says, Andrew Romano calls it the, quote, soft bigotry of low expectations. She's highlighting that men who are staying home with their children encounter this all the time of women saying to them like, oh, you're such a cute dad. And it's it's quite demeaning. And it, you know, saying things that they would never say to women that we can take completely for granted that women are going to be, you know, nurturing and wonderful parents. And so, yeah. Um, so I love the title of this chapter too, Amy, and one of the key theses of this chapter is when Slaughter says, she says, the most most of the pervasive gender equalities in our society for both men and women cannot be fixed unless men have the same range of choices with respect to mixing caregiving and breadwinning that women do. So as you, you know, as we've been talking about, there needs to be a movement that enables men to also cross the divide between caregiving and competition, right? To mm-hmm. to be in that continuum that we were talking about, that equation in which competition and caregiving are are mixed in different proportions to create a whole life. And that is definitely what she spends the most of the chapter on. And um, she says, for instance, it dawned on me that the majority of American mothers in the 21st century are raising our daughters with more life paths open to them than are open to our sons. That's a staggering statement, but mm-hmm. you know, it's totally true. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make the point though that before you read the chapter, if you just read the the title of the chapter, you know, the next stage of the women's movement is a men's movement. I think you can read it actually very differently, which is that men have a responsibility now to finish clearing the paths that women currently do not yet have the power and privilege to do. That's such a great point, Nylan. And I would say to sum up chapter six, because she gives a lot of examples of where, you know, gender parity or equity and and, and justice and opportunity were not there yet. Um, okay, that's that's what we've got for chapter six. Nyland, do you want to? Yeah, I think we wanted to jump into the the last section of the book, which is the practical applications of all of these observations. How how we change our our speech um, and our plans for our careers and the way we interact with others based on what she's laid out so far. So this is the really great practical nuts and bolts. Of, of her recommendations here in this last part of the book. Chapter eight is, is called Change the Way You Talk. She gives a list of suggestions of, you know, bullet pointed ideas for how to speak to somebody else in a way 
that tries to break down some of these barriers between care and competition. And and I'll just I'll just read a couple of these. She talks about, you know, don't use the term stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, a phrase that implies that the office is the norm and thus someone at home needs a qualifier. She says, mm-hmm. try using the descriptors lead parent, anchor parent instead. So uh, another suggestion is when one of your work colleagues or someone you supervise must leave early, come in late, or work from home because of caregiving responsibilities, try to avoid asking things like, how do you plan to get your work done, even if the question is not accusatory. Questions like these reinforce the assumption that if you are committed to your family, you are less committed to your work. I wanted to highlight that one because I think COVID has really (laughs) forced Mm -hmm. all of us to just, I mean, that that question is obsolete, I hope, in a lot of spheres, right? How do you plan to get your work done? I think that this past year and a half really kind of made that a moot point. But but that's a really good thing because as she says, you know, we're we're no longer reinforcing the assumption that if you're committed to your family, you're less committed to your work or that there's only one place you can do your work, right? I think that's been a defining factor of my career. You know, she talks about asking people basic things like asking people what they're reading rather than how's work or what do you do. And then she's got actionable items for your career as well. And I like these two. They're not, sorry, not actionable items. She has scenarios that, that people should think about when planning their careers because going back to her, her, you know, one of her theses that I talked about at the very beginning, she is working off the assumption that life is an adventure and life is, is not going to go the way that you think it should go. Um, and so she challenges people to really be realistic about what it takes to be a working parent, and that it can be very complicated. And she says, for instance, your child has a fever of 101 for the third day in a row. The doctor says it will run its course, but daycare won't take him until his fever has been below 100 for 24 hours. Um, Your partner has a major work presentation. You can't stay home either. What do you do? Here's another one. To cover the school summer vacation between kindergarten and first grade, which is the bane of working parents' existence, by the way. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Summer just drives me crazy. You have enrolled your daughter in a highly regarded summer day camp. However, she's unable to handle such a big transition and is acting out. The camp directors told you she's too disruptive and cannot stay. At this point, all the other quality camps are full and you are not sure she could handle them anyway. What will you do? I like this one because, you know, you can't ever outsource a child's happiness to Zoom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can't just say you're going to work at home because the summer camp didn't work out. I mean, maybe, maybe you can, but it just seems like a long, you know, that that's, that's not, that's not realistic. The, the four points that she, the four principles she gives, she suggests for planning a career that really is able to work around these kinds of um, potholes that she describes. And I love the way that she concludes the book with these four principles, um, I just think they're really actionable and they really bring together everything she's been talking about. So she says the first principle to, to work to look at when you're planning a career is that life, especially working life, is considerably longer than previous generations. There's time to do lots of things. Um, and she makes the point that, you know, rather than being a company man and staying on the professional ladder at the same company for decades. Nobody does that anymore, right? That's kind of Mm -hmm. weird these days. (laughs) Um, 
And, but she says, depending on your career goals, you'll want to put the intense effort to climb at least what some of those corporate ladders, uh, some of those ladders to do everything you can to make it to a certain level or even to the top. But between these periods of push, you'll also be able to plan intervals of less intensive and more flexible work, work that is more compatible with caregiving. The second thing she suggests is a portfolio career. So part-time jobs, all of which together add up to a full-time job and each of which allows you to express a different part of your identity. So also defined as a series of full-time jobs that challenge you in a different way. So she's saying you can either sort of put together um, a portfolio or like a collage of jobs at any one time that sort of challenge you in different ways and and as a whole satisfy you, or you can do it over the series of, of time where you have different jobs that challenge you in a different way. Again, I feel like I've done that latter path, I've had a series of full-time jobs that have challenged me in different ways, and it's been really, really fulfilling. Um, her third principle is defer. Don't drop out entirely. Stay in the game. Plan for leaning back as well as leaning in. Make deliberate rather than unintended choices. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, if you're strategic, you can find ways to keep your networks fresh and your skills sharp even as you slow down. Move laterally and even backward for a while. And so the fourth um, thing that she Fourth principle she recommends in career planning is another thing that we, we've done. She says um, – she calls them seesaw marriages. So take turns being the breadwinner and the lead parent. So I just love the way she she concludes with those um, four principles for for planning a career in, in a um, complicated uh, and long lifespan that we get to enjoy today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love those too. All of those that you shared, the scenarios, and I mean, just hearing some of those scenarios just makes your blood pressure go up. Just like totally the kid with the fever and the summer camp, and your child's melting down, and oh wow, I just so appreciated her honesty. And then yeah, those those four questions to ask yourself and and principles to work with. But that brings us to the end. And Nylan, wow, thank you so much for reading this book with me. Thank you for those brilliant insights and sharing your stories. I I just had a great time having this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I had a great time too. 